Drive with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to the latest episode of the Robots Podcast. I am Jana and today we're focusing on autonomous cars, an exciting and buzzing field on the cusp of moving from labs and testing facilities to actual roads and highways. Startup company Newtonomy was set up to tackle one of the most difficult challenges in self-driving cars, driving in urban environments. This is particularly challenging as urban environments are filled with possible obstacles, including, of course, other cars, buses, lorries, bikes, but also people, children and pets, all of which may behave in an unexpected way, take a sudden turn, make a sudden stop or run into the road. For autonomous cars to be safe, it is essential that they're equipped to handle these situations. And that's exactly what Newtonomy is focusing on. Our interviewer Audro spoke to Carl Jagnema, Principal Research Scientist at MIT and CEO of Newtonomy. Their discussion focused on software development for driverless vehicles, the market and technology for autonomous cars, and plans for Newtonomy. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. Can you introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Carl Jagnema. I am a Principal Research Scientist at MIT where I direct the Robotic Mobility Group. And I'm also the CEO and co-founder of a startup called Newtonomy, which is building software for self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me the premise of Newtonomy? Yeah, sure. We founded Newtonomy uh, in late 2013. Uh, we is myself and uh, my co-founder, a fellow named Emilio Frizzoli, who is a professor of aeronautics and astronautics at MIT. Um, the goal of the company is to develop a complete solution Uh, for software to enable what we call level four autonomous driving in urban environments. Level four refers to a case where you can take your hands off the wheel and the car will take you from point A to point B in a city center without you, the driver, having to do anything at all. And why urban driving? Well, the use case that we're addressing and kind of the need is what we call mobility on demand, which means you call a car when you need it and it takes you where you need to go and you hop out of that car and then that car is free to do something else. Go pick up another passenger, deliver a parcel, etc. And you know the distinction is between personal ownership of a vehicle, which is what everybody today is familiar with, where you've got your car parked in your driveway. Um, the problem with personal car ownership is that uh, we end up using our personally owned cars only a very small fraction of the time, anywhere between three and six percent of the time. The rest of the time, so the vast majority of that car's life, is spent parked in your driveway, parked in a parking structure. It's not being actively utilized. So it's a really lost opportunity to use a very valuable resource. You know, mobility on demand means that we can use one car to serve several people. Uh, it's potentially Uh, well, obviously a more convenient transportation mode, and as it turns out, potentially less expensive. So studies have shown that if we can enable autonomous mobility on demand, which means you've got these fleets of robotic taxis zipping around cities, we could actually reduce the cost of 
transportation over the course of a year for an average person. So it may, in fact, end up being not only more convenient but cheaper to use autonomous transportation than owning your own car. And the reason we're focusing on urban centers is that uh, typically this, this type of transportation we're talking about is it's basically like a taxi service. And you know, people tend to take taxis in cities, not in the suburbs, not in the country, uh, just because distance travels are shorter, parking is more difficult and more expensive. Mm-hmm. Now, so you've alluded to the benefit of sharing for autonomous cars. What are some of the other benefits? Well, cost is one I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, sharing, you know, convenience is another one. Uh, again, anyone who lives in a city, particularly a dense city, knows the pain associated with parking. Um, and so when you put those things together, you know, you've got a pretty compelling uh, case study. But now, the third thing that I think is um, you know, really appreciated by anyone who spends time during their commute in traffic is just the convenience associated with being driven rather than driving. So in this case, being driven by a robot, um, reclaiming the time you spent sitting in traffic, having to stare at the car in front of you, and being able to do something useful with that time, you know, that's extremely valuable. And uh, once people actually experience autonomous mobility on demand, they immediately appreciate how much this will improve their lives. So on what kind of magnitude is the problem of autonomous cars solving? Well, there's a lot of different dimensions to it. Um, If you look at safety, for example, uh, autonomous cars promise to be much safer than manually driven cars, and so therefore they're going to reduce a lot of injuries and death associated with driving. And if you look at accident statistics, um, about 33,000 people in the U.S. die every year in traffic accidents. If you quantify the economic impact and costs associated with, you know, fatalities and injuries associated with traffic accidents using, you know, actuarial estimates of values associated with uh, human injury and death, you end up with an economic impact of about $300 million, sorry, $300 billion a year uh, in the U.S. alone associated with traffic deaths. Now, you know, if autonomous vehicles can reduce or eliminate that, you've got a pretty substantial impact right there. But even beyond safety, there's other impacts. Uh, I mentioned productivity, reclaiming the time you spend in the car where you're just sitting in traffic. The value of that time actually dwarfs the impact uh, related to safety. So the, the estimates of the economic impact of reclaiming that time spent in traffic and transferring it to some useful activity is on the order of $1.2 trillion a year. So now you've got safety, productivity, and then lastly, I mentioned that you know, employing autonomous cars as your primary mode of transportation could even be cheaper than owning a car. And that, let's call it the sharing impact, that impact of sharing has been estimated by some to be on the order of almost $2 trillion a year. So when you add all these factors up, safety, productivity, sharing, you're looking at an economic impact of 3 to $4 trillion a year. And those benefits are going to be distributed across industries, across sectors. Some of it will be returned to you know, your everyday people in, in terms of increased time, maybe for productivity or maybe just for leisure. But the big picture here, the reason that there's so much uh, industrial interest in this space, so much... Uh, 
interests at state and national levels is because companies, governments realize just the massive impact uh, to society that mm-hmm. will be derived from autonomous driving technology. And this is why you see companies that are not involved in the automotive, auto, not involved in the automotive industry, getting involved in autonomous cars. Yeah, what we would call non-traditional players. I mean, that's a great point. You know, Google, for example. I mean, Google is obviously a search engine company at their heart. They they're known for doing a bunch of cool other stuff. And so, when we heard about them getting into autonomous driving, you first thought, well, it's a novelty. It's something neat. It's a hard technical problem. And sure, makes sense that Google would do it. When you look at the potential revenue to be gained, well, then you understand, well, this makes a lot of business sense for Google. Um, But again, sort of fits with their experimental culture. Now, Apple, which has been rumored, and I think I would say strongly rumored at this point to be building a car, that was uh, more of a puzzler to people. You say, well, why would Apple possibly build a car? They are not known, unlike Google, for going off and doing, let's say, very high-risk crazy stuff. They're more known as a, as a company that doesn't always lead. They, they sometimes follow, but they, they get it right, right? They kind of follow and present something that's better than anything that came before it. Um, but these numbers I mentioned, when you start talking about numbers on the orders of trillions of dollars, you understand why a company like Apple, uh, one of the largest um, by revenue uh, companies in the world, would have an interest in this technology essentially because it's too big to ignore. Now, so what are some of the major problems you see before cars can be autonomous in urban environments and elsewhere? Unfortunately, there's a lot. (laughs) There's both technical problems, there's legal problems, and there's regulatory problems. Um, The technical problems, well, let me take that back. All of those problems differ in nature depending on where you're going to deploy. Some are the same. But many of them differ. To give you an example, the United States today is uh, a patchwork at a state level of regulation around autonomous driving. Who's allowed to test under what conditions? Um, It varies from state to state. When you think about deployment, eventually putting products on the road, the picture is very murky. So if I were a large automotive company with the U.S. as my first target market, I would see the regulatory landscape as one of these known unknowns. Right, and uh, in, in a scary sense, something that's somewhat, you know, largely beyond your control. You can try to shape the legislation through lobbying, but you ultimately can't make that decision. Uh, the legal landscape, similarly, in the U.S., uh, a litigation-friendly environment. We understand that if you have a problem with your car, which leads to uh, an accident, an injury, a death, uh, obviously the impact on your operation is likely to be significant. Now, in other countries around the world. Uh, that landscape is different. Um, my company, Newtonomy, we are doing our testing and uh, our eventual deployment will be in Singapore. And the Singaporean government is viewing autonomous driving, I would say, very differently than most countries around the world. They recognize the potential impact on their society of the technology, and they're doing everything they can to make it a reality as quickly as they can. So instead of you know, being dragged along by corporate interests, which is, you know, sometimes you get a sense of that's where some of the U.S. states are. Uh, they are really almost doing the opposite. They're incentivizing companies to come to Singapore and do their testing and development. They're providing direct financial incentives. They're trying to create a kind of friendly regulatory environment, you know, while being safe, of course, ensuring that they're, 
the streets are safe, the cars are safe, but trying to make it easy for people to get on the road. So that's kind of the regulatory and legal dimensions. Technically, technical problems are hard everywhere, but harder in certain places. And specifically, I'm talking about environments where you might have a lot of snow and where the infrastructure is poor. Mm. So we look for environments that are sunny, warm, and with good infrastructure. Roger, going back to Singapore, mm-hmm. do you think that it could be a model for other countries to follow? It certainly could be. And uh, I say that because they put a lot of thought into this problem, how to uh, regulate around it, uh, what the impact on their society will be. I think a lot of countries could stand to learn from Singapore. But that said, you know, a lot of countries don't see as much of a need. Um, Singapore is uh, very concerned with efficiency. It's not a big country. They're not going to grow geographically. So they have to grow in the future by becoming more efficient, and they recognize that. Other countries may not prioritize this technology as much because they figure, well, it's, you know, there are other things we can do that maybe will cost us less or expose us to less risk. Um, so I think there are certain few countries around the world that are ideal test markets for this technology that are progressive, kind of techn- technologically savvy and forward-looking and will want to be early adoptees. I do think that once other countries around the world see the benefits of this technology, both for their populace, you know, the transportation populace, uh, and both the impact on society and kind of the, the, the halo effect that having autonomous cars on the streets of your cities will have, I think uh, countries will become jealous. <laughs> and, uh, they're going to want it too. So I think we'll see it start in a few forward-thinking cities around the world and then spread pretty quickly after that. Mm-hmm. How did you find Singapore for this? It's a good question. It was a little bit of serendipity, I would say. Um, well, let me take that back. To some degree, it was serendipitous. My co-founder, Emilio Frizzoli, was directing a research lab in Singapore in, under the auspices of an organization called SMART, which stands for Singapore-MIT Alliance for Research and Technology. It's funded by the Singaporean government, but in close collaboration with MIT. And so Emilio started a lab in Singapore, and his lab put the first autonomous cars on the roads in Singapore through the academic institution. Now, when he did that, uh, I think that demonstration, those demonstrations and some of the studies that he did showing the potential impact on Singapore specifically of the technology, I think it opened a lot of eyes in the Singaporean government. I think um, it really had a hand in shaping some of the thinking in Singapore around why this technology will be useful for them as a country. So, you know, we sort of organically grew our operation in Singapore in large part because we already had a presence there. But as it's turned out, uh, it's one of the best places in the world to develop this technology. Mm-hmm. Now, so you were talking about how it should be a nice place, uh, stable environment, good weather, mm-hmm. uh, when we were referring to the challenges. Yeah. We continue with that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, all of those things just make the problem a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. If you look at a place like Singapore, where you've got uh, very well-maintained infrastructure, uh, you have a populace that, generally speaking obeys the rules, <laughs> drives well. Um, uh, you have a lack of snow. Uh, snow is one of the tricky challenges facing autonomous vehicles today. Put those things together and it makes your problem a bit easier to solve. It doesn't eliminate, of course, a lot of the really hard technical problems that are going to exist anywhere. But, you know, you have to crawl before you can walk and Singapore may be an environment where we can start crawling. Mm. So what are some of the technical challenges? Well, there are a lot, yeah. I mean... A lot of this technology is coming directly from research labs around the world, you know, robotics research groups in particular. And um, 
some areas, quite frankly, are not mature enough uh, yet to deploy, and uh, there's a real need to, to rapidly mature these technologies. I'm thinking specifically about technology related to perception, so being able to perform very robust perception in a very wide range of uh, environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. And so per- perception includes LIDAR, computer vision, general sensing? LIDAR, uh, vision, and uh, sensor fusion between multiple sensing modes of agents like other cars, mm-hmm. pedestrians, cyclists, signage, road markings. Um, those are the core problems. So perception is a difficult one to get right all the time. Um, Decision-making is another area. Planning and decision-making, I would couple together as an area that is uh, underappreciated in its difficulty and complexity. We see it as one of the real hard problems in autonomy. Mm -hmm. It also happens to be one of the problems that there's, I would say, in the community, the least amount of expertise in. So what happens in, in our experience, what happens is people develop a prototype car and they think, well, this is a perception problem. And so they work very hard on the perception. They get a kind of a B plus, A minus perception system in there, and off they go. Once you start driving, you start actually putting your car on the road and you get it in urban environments, typically that's when you realize that, wow, this planning and decision-making problem is really hard. And you realize that because your car starts doing things that aren't very smart because you're operating now in scenarios that you haven't modeled before uh, in your decision-making logic. And um, you quickly realize the limits to some of the, say, traditional approaches to -hmm. planning and decision-making. So that's an area where we devote a lot of our activity and energy, this planning and decision-making area. It's an area where we think we have a really significant uh, strategic technical advantage compared to a number of the big players in the space. Hmm. So I'm sure you can't go into great detail, but what would the general approach be? Is it, it's not a multi-policy thing where you try to model every situation? Well, what kind of thing? it sort of is. I mean, I think the general approach is one where you think through all the different cases that your car might uh, experience, and you try to write down some logic that will govern uh, the car's behavior in mm-hmm. those scenarios, and you encode it in some reasonable form, something like a, uh, a state machine or other type of logical structure. The challenge comes from trying to do that engineering by hand, to try to actually think through those cases and manually engineer the logic that's going to govern the car's operation. And the reason that's hard is, A, because there's a lot of different cases you need to consider, and, um, and B, you know, the, uh, the off-nominal cases, the corner cases, are hard to imagine, and uh, I would say even harder to uh, encode robustly in your logic. So what we found, and this is by direct experience, you know, we've gone down this road, is that uh, these things, these logical methods are hard to construct by hand, even harder to debug and troubleshoot, um, and then inherently not very scalable. So, Why? Well, again, you know, you start testing, you start recognizing that you should add additional you know, cases, add additional, let's say, dimensions to the problem, if you will, Uh, other variables that you need to consider during your decision-making process, and you very quickly get to a high-dimensional, complex logical structure that's just, uh, frankly, a mess. Mm -hmm. So what has your approach been? Well, we are uh, drawing on techniques that have been successfully used in the aerospace community for, you know, exactly this problem, constructing decision-making logic for safety-critical complex autonomous systems like uh, spacecraft and aircraft. 
Um, and so there are techniques out there, algorithmic methods, that are more on uh, the algorithm development side. So it's to say, when you're developing a decision-making engine, can we use some kind of specialized techniques such that your resulting decision-making logic is guaranteed, guaranteed to have some properties? In other words, can we have verifiable properties about your decision-making logic, which is really what we want. So we've been very um, uh, you know, impressed with uh, the power of some of these techniques. Um, it gives us confidence that our decision-making logic is exactly representing you know, the, the logic that we're attempting to encode. Mm -hmm. And it gives us uh, confidence that it has a scalable aspect to it, so that when we want to add, for example... Uh, new rules or new logic, we can do so without having to go back and re-engineer an entire messy, you know, kind of mess of if-then statements. Mm -hmm. That's really what you want to avoid here. Can you talk about the approach at a high level? What, what is the algorithm? Or... Yeah, at the highest level, what we're able to do is define a set of rules or preferences with a hierarchy. So the rules are basically, you know, your rules of the road which can be taken almost from a driver's handbook, and then augmented with some set of preferences, which may be region-specific, which may be specific to time of day, which may be uh, scenario-specific. And then, as I mentioned, um, organize them in a hierarchy uh, and identify which of these rules are inviolable, that maybe don't hit anything, and which can be violated under certain circumstances. For example, crossing the center line of a road, which you may need to do to maneuver around a parked car, uh, as long as you can do that in a safe manner. So I think that's actually a useful example. If you think about a very rigorous, strict decision-making problem, which would say never cross the center line, well, okay, that's a legal way and a very strict legal way to approach driving, but it's not something that human drivers do. Human drivers are actually very good at interpreting the rules of the road in sort of a fluid manner and violating certain rules when it's safe to do so. And we, you know, we, we want our cars of the future to be able to drive in a similar way. If the cars of the future can't drive in a way that's somehow human-like, it's going to cause a lot of problems uh, when they're interacting with human drivers. Um, it's going to cause congestion and may basically surprise other drivers and lead, to, frankly, to accidents. So, um, so we've got techniques for encoding these rules in a rigorous and reliable way, and then by turning an algorithmic crank, we can generate our own decision-making uh, kernel, if you will, uh, which has certain verifiable properties. So it's a little bit vague, but, um, but uh, it's kind of a high-level description of the approach we're taking. Mm -hmm. Now, so for this approach, for different things such as crossing the line, would it essentially have a weight on how strict you want to follow it? And if so, how would you set that weight? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, the answer is that it could. And, um, you know, in terms of setting the weight and organizing the rule structure, that's really where the engineering comes in. So, you know, it's not to say that this is a, a strict method where you just plug in some numbers, turn a crank, and out of it you get this wonderful decision-making engine. There's a lot of expertise and engineering that goes into that aspect of the algorithm design. Uh, so, you know, to enable that, we bring in some of the smartest people in this area that we can find. Um, our first hire at the company was uh, a PhD from Caltech, whose thesis was in exactly this area. We've got uh, a bunch of smart people focused specifically on our decision-making uh, technology, 
mainly because we think it's A, one of the core problems in, in this whole space, and B, one of the hardest problems. Now, can you talk a bit about reliability? Yeah, reliability uh, is, um, and robustness in general is one of the biggest issues facing eventual deployment of, of autonomous vehicles. Um, it's, it's not that hard to develop an autonomous vehicle that will follow a path in a parking lot and maybe even avoid some parked cars here and there. It's much, much harder to develop a system that you can turn up into the, you know, uh, release into the wild and have it drive safely for many thousands of kilometers before any kind of attention or intervention is needed. And it's really an open question in the community uh, how we'll achieve that level of reliability. I think it's going to come through a combination of clever experimental testing, and by that I mean testing in you know, difficult, challenging, complex, uh, and, and sort of independently informative scenarios, uh, but also through, let's say, some smart simulation. Um, that's going to be an essential aspect of validation that's going to lead to reliable systems. And then lastly, you know, we were talking a moment ago about decision-making and our kind of rigorous approach to that problem. I think more broadly there's a need to take rigorous approaches to software development um, of all the individual subsystems that are going into the autonomous driving system, ranging from perception to navigation, uh, decision-making, and control. That's something we're also trying to do. Use rigorous methods and not sort of case-by-case hacks, but rigorous, fundamental, uh, sound approaches to algorithm development. We think that's going to put us on much more solid footing when we eventually deploy our software, and it's going to lead to more robust systems that will be able to drive for longer durations you know, without failures. Mm-hmm. And so Google has 1.5 million miles on their autonomous car. How does that scale for testing? Yeah, you know, the Google statistics are incredibly impressive and really daunting to anyone who's been working in this space because 1.5 million miles is a lot of miles. It really is. And, uh, and through that testing, I, I know that they've uncovered, uh, uncovered many, many bugs that uh, surprised them, that they've, I'm sure, then gone and improved their software. And uh, all of that's gone toward helping them build what's very likely to be the best uh, autonomous vehicle in the world today. But when you mentioned validation and robustness, you know, the 1.5 million miles suddenly doesn't look very big. And what I mean by that is to say 1.5 million miles is not a sufficient amount of miles to actually validate a piece of software. Um, I'm sure that those miles were driven over many different builds of the software. Many of those miles were probably different, uh, driven on the s- same roadways um, to, to validate autonomous vehicle software purely through experimental testing uh, is almost certainly going to take many more miles than a million or two million or possibly even 10 million or 100 million. There was a paper written recently by Rand Corporation that argued that in order to validate an autonomous vehicle software stack purely through experimental driving, it may require even billions of miles driven. Um, The point being to encounter the entire breadth of rich and diverse driving situations that you could convince yourself has explored all the different corner cases that the software may encounter in the real world, you would have to drive actually that many miles. So from a practical perspective, what that means is that validation 
purely through experimental testing is, is, is not a feasible path. And it goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago, that you're going to need some combination of experimental testing, simulation-based testing, but more importantly, you know, rigorous algorithm development. And that's where we think as a startup, you know, we have some value to provide, where we like to think that we have a good idea about how to approach these problems from a rigorous fashion. It's based on our experience in doing research in this area for the past dozen years. Um, I think many people who come to this problem approach it from a more practical, and practical is not bad, I don't mean to say it, make it sound like a dirty word, but a practical sort of um, hack together a solution sort of approach. And what we've found is that while those approaches may work in certain situations, eventually you find that um, uh, they're not scalable, they fail, and sometimes when they fail, they're hard to, hard to fix. Mm. So what does this mean in design? It really means that you start from first principles, and it means that uh, you try to be as rigorous as possible. Uh, you know, sometimes in the community there's a, um, a false division between theory and experimentation. We think, oh, there's theory guys who just write equations, and there's experimentalists who actually get stuff to work. In my experience, <clears throat> you know, the software that really works in the end at scale is the software that comes out of rigorous theory. I don't think there's a division there at all. So I think to end up with highly robust, high-performance software, you've got to get the theory right. That's the foundation for everything. Hmm. Now, how does your company fit into all of this? So the company was founded a couple of years ago. Um, we are now 30 people in uh, Singapore and in Cambridge. There's 20 of us or so in Singapore and 10 of us or so in Cambridge. Um, we are, as I mentioned, you know, focusing on developing software for the complete urban driving solution. Uh, and really, you know, I viewed the company as an opportunity to take a lot of the ideas that I've been experimenting with at MIT over the years and actually see if they work in the real world. Uh, I know I speak for my co-founder Emilio uh, similarly, where he thought, well, you know, we've done a lot of nice studies, we've written a lot of interesting papers, but there's an opportunity here to make a real impact. And so any engineer, of course, everyone, any engineer's dream is to see your work actually working in the real world. And so the chance to have our software and algorithms on thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of cars in the future was uh, too exciting to pass up. So that's why we're focused on the company right now. Mm -hmm. And so with the software, currently you're selling different abilities to the car so like how to uh, autonomous park or something similar but the intention long term is to get full uh, actually autonomous driving would be a service correct yeah yeah so i would say the latter focusing on this service is really our core goal of our company long term but it's also the short term major effort we are working with some uh, car companies today. We work with Jaguar Land Rover, uh, among others, to help them develop specific features that they may eventually sell to customers who buy their cars. But our core focus as a company is, is, is on building our own complete software stack for a level four driving, which can then be eventually, again, sold in a service model so that you're going to download a smartphone app. Um, call a car, it's going to come and pick you up. The only difference is that there'll be nobody in the car. And that experience will be powered by our software. What kind of timeline do you expect for this? 
Well, we hope to get to market uh, in late 2018. And when I say that, though, I think people often assume that that means Singapore will be flooded with autonomous taxis in 2018. That's likely not the case. I think 2018 will see an initial deployment in a very focused application domain. Uh, that might be a geographically you know, bounded part of the city. It might be uh, bounded by time of day. Let's say a specific operational case. That's what we're going to, for. And going forward beyond that is when we'll be scaling in Singapore and then, of course, to other cities. Again, you have to crawl, I'd say, before you can run. Um, I think this general notion that, uh, that we'll go from zero to one overnight, meaning vast fleets of autonomous vehicles, I think that's not likely to be the case. I think we'll see a more gradual introduction of the technology, and I think that's, I think that's the right way to approach this from both a technical perspective, but also from a perspective of you know, introducing the public to this technology, because there are plenty of people who are not going to be, uh, well, thrilled about getting into a driverless car. They might be apprehensive about safety. They might be nervous about uh, the whole experience. I think it's important to introduce uh, the technology in a measured way so that people who want to opt out can opt out, have an opportunity to do so, or who want to kind of take their time and experience the technology can do that as well. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. And that was our look behind the scenes at Newtonomy. As always, you can find more on robohub.org. But before we leave you, we wanted to extend an invitation. If you enjoy listening to the podcast and always wondered what it might be like to be part of the team, then here's your chance. The Robots podcast team are looking for volunteer interviewers to join us and contribute new and exciting content to the podcast. Wherever you are in the world, if you're good at communicating science, have technical knowledge about any robotics field, and always want to know more and ask the important questions, then we'd love to hear from you. Simply send a CV and covering letter to join at robotspodcast.com and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. The next episode will air in two weeks' time. Goodbye. Drive with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.